find our seats and open our Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. And let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your written word that we have in our language. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illumines it to us. We thank you for all the things that you have revealed, how we're going to, I don't think we'll get there today, but how you've given us everything that, we've, that we need pertaining to life and godliness. We lack nothing. Your word is authoritative, it's sufficient. It has everything that we need. And so help us today as we, as we come to, to look at this and to begin to study this book that we would see you, that we may know you aright, so that we may worship you and obey you aright. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have finished the book of Revelation, and um, this morning we're going to embark on the book of Second Peter. Now, as is common, I guess, anymore, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, uh, I was a little surprised to find in my reading this week that the book of 2 Peter is probably the most vigorously contested book in the New Testament. There are a number. Apparently, uh, 2 Peter was not exactly fast to catch on, even with the early church. Most modern scholars will tell you that it definitely was not written by Peter. Um, I don't think any of those arguments hold any water, and we will look at, we're not even going to mess with it, frankly, uh, in any depth. Um, why, why would that be? What immediately would be called into question if you have a book where the author specifically claims to be somebody else. If Peter didn't write this book, and in verse 1 you see the author introduce himself as Simon Peter, but it's not Peter, what's an immediate problem? Andrew, yeah, somebody's lying. So here you have somebody who's supposed to be writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the first words out of their mouth are a lie. That would be a problem. Which is why, frankly, I think there is such a move afoot in order to try to cast that kind of doubt on God's word, which would be a sign of who? Who would want to be taking? Well, that's probably, there's, there's a number of answers there that you could give. Who would want to be taking away the contents of God's word? Satan, Satan would. Who else? If you take away the truth, what becomes much more palatable? Your own truth or error, lies, false doctrine, which by the way is what this book is about. This book is primarily about false teachers. How do you recognize them and how do you avoid falling prey to them? How do you avoid being one? And so, again, there have been attacks on just about every book in the Bible. Just about. Between, well, you know, these weren't really written by who the person says they are. 
with Second Peter, they'll say um, the false teachers that he's talking about, uh, that's the second stage of Gnosticism. That didn't come around until the late second century. So it's a long time after Peter, so Peter couldn't be writing it. Peter uh, has a lot of shared information with the book of Jude. Peter borrowed from Jude. Jude was the source material Peter took from Jude. I don't even know how they come up with that one, in all honesty. Because when you look now, are there similarities between 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude? Yes. Lots and lots and lots of similarities. One big difference. In 2 Peter, that is future tense, they're coming. In the book of Jude, it is present tense, they're here. And so, um, again, they come up with all kinds of things. They talk about, well, in fact, they use an old argument. They use an argument that was used in Peter's lifetime. Do you recall how the Sanhedrin viewed Peter and John when they were hauled before the Sanhedrin back in Acts chapter 5, I think it was. How did they refer to Peter and John? They were uneducated men. Do you recall what, I believe, at least I think it is, do you recall what the word for uneducated is in Greek? (laughs) Idiotes. I wonder what word we get from that. They recognize that they, they, they go, these guys are uneducated, yet they had another characteristic, which was, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the knock on Peter is, well, you know, look, Peter's got to be an ignoramus because he was a fisherman, you know, and everybody knows about fishermen. Now, I do know a few fishermen. I don't know that uneducated is the word that I would tend to apply to them, since our brother Dave is a rather avid fisherman, at least he has been in years past. And so there's, 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 there's many assumptions that are made. Peter was a fisherman, therefore he's uneducated, therefore he can't possibly know all these different things about Hellenism, about Greek culture, about Greek speech. They forget that Galilee in Peter's day was referred to how? Galilee of the Gentiles. Peter was raised with that. And he was fairly well-traveled. We know from other places in the New Testament that he had been to Corinth. We know that he had been to Antioch. Um, There's pretty good reason to believe that he'd been to Rome. And so he was, you know, fairly well-traveled. And so, again, the, all these things that they come up with to try to explain a way that somehow he can't possibly write this book just don't make a lot of sense. So, any questions with that? Good, let's leave that be. So the book's written by Simon Peter. Now, it's interesting that in this book, he starts off differently than in 1 Peter. First Peter, he's just Peter. This book, he is Simon Peter. And in fact, if you go back to the manuscripts, it is Simeon Peter. Simeon being the Jewish rendition of his name. Simon being the Greek rendition of his name. Now, his full name is Simon Bar-Jonah, right? Simon, son of John. After he becomes a disciple, Jesus gives him a new name. Now, what was that name? Okay, it was actually Cephas. Now, here again, now remember, we've got multiple languages going on here, all right? Cephas is the Aramaic name. The Greek equivalent for Cephas is Peter. Cephas means stone, Petros, rock. And so 
you've got multiple variations on names in here, but at the end of the day, Simon Peter. Now, as we read the book, and we're going to read the book this morning, when you read this book, it comes across as a last testament. Peter's getting ready to die. He knows he's going to die, and he's going to die soon. And so often when you have people, especially somebody uh, who, has, uh, who is more pastoral, what is one of the things that they're going to want to do when they're approaching that day? Think about it for a minute. You are terminally ill. The day is, a, is approaching. It's not hypothetical. It's not if, it's when. There are people that you care for, people that you have been caring for. What are you very likely to do with those people? Pardon me? Call them, to you. Call, call them to you for what purpose? Tell them you love them. Okay, tell them you love them. What else? Final wisdom. Final words. Deuteronomy is to a great degree Moses' final words to the people of Israel. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. He can't go. And so Deuteronomy is a collection of, I think it's what, three sermons to where Moses uh, gives them again the law and preparing them for going in to the promised land. And he's trying to give them assistance, bringing things to their recollection because he's not going to be there. And for the last 40 years, who have the people gone to when they had questions? They've gone to Moses, and Moses knows, I'm not going to be there. Paul, when he is addressing the Ephesian elders, what's the, what is the impetus of that conversation? In fact, you know what, let's just go there. Acts chapter 20. Paul's on his way back to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. What is Paul anticipating when he gets to Jerusalem? He's going to be arrested, and he's going to go to prison. He's going to go to the Huskow. Verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Again, what is he anticipating? Where's he at in his race? Finish lines in sight. He doesn't know exactly how far, but... It's not far. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, 
I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Again, so what's the, what's the sense here of Paul's meeting here with the Ephesian elders? I'm going away. I'm not going to see you again. And there are some things that you need to know. There are some things that you need to watch out for. There are people that you need to watch out for. Because again, Paul's not going to be there. Peter's doing the same thing here. In 2 Peter, his day is coming, his end is coming. And so, these people to whom he has written before, I have some last things to tell you. Some of them are going to be positive, some of them are going to be negative. But again, that's the nature of life, and it's the nature of what they were going to face. Now, when did, Jesus, when did Peter get the name Peter? Yeah, Jesus gives it to him, and not immediately, right? There's some passage of time, and, and, and Jesus renames Peter. So it's interesting. When you read in the Gospels, when does Jesus use Simon when he is speaking to Peter? Exactly. It's like your mom using your middle name. He uses Simon's name when Simon is acting like Simon before Jesus. Peter is after Jesus. So if you look at Luke 22, 31 to 34, you're going to find uh, Jesus talking to Peter saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to be able to sift you like wheat. When Jesus and Peter meet after the resurrection, and they're on the beach. How does Jesus refer to Peter? He asks him three questions. Simon, do you love me? And so it's, and so Peter now is introducing himself as who? Simon Peter. I've been who I was. I am who I am. And I am who I am because of the grace of God. In fact, he goes on. He's a doulos. And again, that's in the NAS, it's, it's, it's translated uh, bondservant. What was a doulos? A doulos was a slave. I'm a slave. And I'm also an apostle. I'm owned by Jesus. I've been sent by him. And so here Peter is at the end of his life. And he wants to communicate things to these believers so that they will not fall prey 
after he's gone, when he's not going to be there. We're going to see in this book, he says, he basically, I know that you know these things, but I'm going to stir you up to remind you. You know, that's most of preaching, right? If you come here on Sunday morning expecting that you're going to hear something new from this pulpit, you need to find another church. If you're hearing something that's new, because I've got a new word from God, that is danger Will Robinson territory. Preaching is about reminding people. Now, maybe you haven't heard something before, but that doesn't mean it got wrote last week. I'm sorry, I should have said written. So Peter's the author of the book. When's it written? Now, we don't have, there's not a date given, so there's no internal date that, that gives us as to when it is. Tradition has it that Peter was martyred under Nero, and we know the end of Nero's reign was 68 AD. It is likely that Peter survived Paul, probably not by much. And so toward the end of Nero's reign, so 67, 68 is probably a good date for this book. The audience also is not stated, but since in his book he talks about, I've written you before, and so if you go back and look in 1 Peter, you'll find that he was writing to people who were in regions in Asia Minor. Asia Minor kind of became the hotbed, really, um, when Christianity spread from, um, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, when you start talking about the uttermost parts of the earth, predominantly it was moving north up into Asia Minor. We just finished the book of um, Revelation. Where were those churches? There were seven churches that got letters. Where were they? They're in Asia Minor. And so that, that kind of tended to be the, the new hotbed. Antioch was in Asia Minor up in Turkey. And so when you, when you see, uh, if you go back to 1 Peter, you'll see that um, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, if you, if you get a map out, you'll see that that is um, in Turkey moving up toward the Black Sea. So what's this book about? Predominantly, Peter is warning about false teachers. Now, over the last year, we have looked at the book of Revelation. What is predominant in the book of Revelation? Truth or error? Well, there's lots of truth when it comes to what Jesus is saying, but what is being peddled consistently through the tribulation period in particular? False doctrine, error, leading people astray. Before that, we did the pastorals, First and Second Timothy and Titus. What is Paul consistently warning Timothy and Titus about? False doctrine. How do you identify it? How do you combat it? What do you do about it? And so there's, there's a theme here. You have the New Testament being produced. The letters are being written to the churches. They're able to uh, change some of them back and forth. Uh, when we do the book of Colossians here in a few weeks, uh, we're going to see that at the end of Colossians, Paul says, listen, I want you to read this and I want you to send this letter over to Laodicea and I want you to take the letter that I wrote to Laodicea and I want you to read that. And so there's stuff going back and forth. A lot of these churches are not terribly distant from each other. And so you have uh, these letters being written. You have God's revelation being produced and it's being over centuries, it's being codified, it's being collected. But coming out of that, 
there are all kinds of other letters that are being produced. There is an, uh, oh, phooey, now I'm trying to remember the names of some of them. There's the Gospel of Barnabas. There is uh, the Gospel of Thomas. There are several, the Apocryphon of Peter. There's another one that's relates uh, or attributed specifically to Peter. There was a bishop uh, who wrote a letter uh, posing as Paul, and he, is, his, he said his motivation was, I love Paul, I'm trying to ascribe credit to Paul, but he wrote it under Paul's name, and his name is not Paul. So what did they do? In fact, here's a good example of what the early church did with these pseudo-epigraphical books. Big fancy word, somebody talking, writing under somebody else's name as a pen name or whatever. How did the early church respond to that? They kicked him out as being a bishop, being an overseer, and they ignored what he wrote. Now, why would they just out and out ignore what he wrote? The first words out of his mouth weren't true. If he's going to lie about that, how in the world are we supposed to trust anything else that he's, coming, that he's, that he's saying? So... Peter's warning of false teachers. Now, something that's interesting in his book, he doesn't focus on their actual doctrine as much. He focuses on them. Here is what they look like. Here is how they act. So that number one, they will not act in the same manner. And number two, uh, he gives them enough to where they have enough of an understanding as to what is true so that when these guys come peddling their wares, they can recognize them, they can recognize the error. So the em there's emphasis on knowledge in this book. There's a couple of different words that get used uh, about knowledge. There's to know, there's uh, even different ways to know and all of that. They're the derivatives of to know or knowledge, there's 15 of them. That word is used, those words are used 15 times in this book. It's only three chapters. And so Peter talks about that a lot. He begins with grace and truth. Here's the basis. Here's where everything about the Christian life, here's where it springs from. And he's gonna end up with, now that you know these things, what kind of person ought you to be? How do you respond? How should you be responding to these? Do you ever find yourself in your Christian life? For instance, have you ever prayed, Lord, change this in me? Ever heard that one? Ever prayed that one? What's wrong with that? That's not a rhetorical question. Okay, so the, the response there is I have to choose to change. I have to take steps. So, in, 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 which is absolutely correct. When I am saying, Lord, I need you to change this in me, am I taking an active stance or a passive stance? That's passive. Okay, so the question is, is, this, is, that, is that request wrong or is it incomplete? How did, Peter, how did Paul answer that question? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work at you, in you. Right. So the point here is, though, if I step back... And I'm just, you know, let go and let God. Right? Okay, there is a distinction. There is a distinction and there is a partnership. The point is, 
Mm -hmm. That's correct. However, what Peter gets at, he uses a word again in the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. There, there are often times where we tend to be spiritually lazy. That is not how you live the Christian life. How does Peter deal with that issue? You don't need to be lazy. You need to be diligent. You need to be acting and not just, uh, you know, being the, the dandelion that falls on the surface of the water and is being carried down to wherever. And so, again, there's an exhortation to diligence. Now, what Peter is going to represent that the antidote to false teaching is what? How do you combat error? with the truth. And so again, that's why you have such an emphasis on knowledge. Not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but knowledge as the, as the spring from which to be able to act. So in the beginning of the book, know and obey the truth. Middle of the book, watch out for false teachers. In the last part of the book, steadfast in your faith. So, we have not been able to do this for a while because the books that we've been studying have been long. This is a letter. How do you read letters? You start with dear so-and-so and you end with what? However they sign off. So let's read the book. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent." as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet." These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if... After they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and... A sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they mention this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, of the day of God, excuse me, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction." You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. When you read that, do you get the sense? Does Peter expect to write to these people again? Nope. Does Peter expect to see them again? Nope. And so he's giving them these things so that they're going to be able to carry on. By the way, when he talks in there, and we're going to get to this when, we get, when, we're, when we're going through the text. The idea of after I'm gone, you're still going to be able to remember these things? Why? They're written. He's writing them down for them. Can you imagine what the Christian life would be like if we had to rely on oral tradition? How long would truth endure? You can't even make it around the room and maintain all the same details. You've played that game telephone before, right? Amazing how things turn out by the time it's gone through 10 or 15 people. And so again, what a blessing it is for us to be able to have God's word written in our language. All right, we're going to try to cover two verses today. Now, it's not going to be like that every week. We're going to try to do this book in six weeks. And so we're going to have to move. But today, it's amazing to me how much you can pack into a few words. So Peter's using his full name. We've talked about that. He's a slave and an apostle. This word received, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now, this is an interesting word. If, if you're one who doesn't like the, the idea of election, you're not going to like this verse. Because the word received is the idea of you've received by lot. Remember um, the soldiers when they were 
gambling for the clothing of Jesus, for his, for his cloak. What did they do? They cast lots. As a matter of fact, the idea of casting lots has a great Jewish tradition, doesn't it? In the Old Testament, how often were people identified out of a group? When there was sin in the camp under Joshua, when Achan took what was under the ban, how was he identified? Yeah, they cast lots for the families first, for the tribe. And boom, this tribe gets taken. And okay, now here's the major families in this tribe, and this family gets taken. All right, now here's the main people in this, in this family, and this one is taken. And finally they get down to Achan, and it's like, all right, it's you, Andrew. But that was the point. Andrew's, Andrew's point is, well, it's God who's at work. That was the point. When you cast lots, they did that with Matthias. When they were replacing Judas. You were saying, Vitaly? Yeah, what I was saying is that you can't really take that concept and run with it, right? No. Okay. Now, do we want to run with that? No. But we don't have to. What do we have that Israel didn't in the Old Testament? We have the written word of God. We have it in our possession. We have the Holy Spirit. And again, that is something we should never take for granted. God dwells in the heart of believers. One of the things, one of the missions of the Holy Spirit is to bring to our remembrance the things that Jesus said. That is an incredible blessing and not to be, you know, taken for granted. And so the idea here, though, is that that is how we have received the Holy Spirit. We've obtained it, but not by our own doing. That was by God's doing. So if you look, flip back over, uh, actually I think Acts 117 is when they're, they're uh, selecting Matthias. No, it's not. It's actually talking about Judas. Start in verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Did Judas, did Judas um, choose Jesus? No. Jesus chose his disciples, right? Jesus chose them. Judas was chosen, so he received his part in that ministry. If you flip back a few pages, John 19, 24. That's talking about the soldiers and casting lots for the clothing. That casting lots is the same word. And so the idea here with Peter, what he's saying is, you have received this. This is something that has been given to you. You've received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now, We've already seen that 2 Peter, the second chapter at least, is very similar to the book of Jude. Now, when Jude was writing about faith, how did Jude refer to it? Jude 3. Okay, go back just a little bit further because you want to grab the definite article. The faith, right? The faith once delivered. What is the faith that is once delivered. Is that talking about our individual faith when we repent and believe? Is that what it's referring to? 
No. What's it referring to? It's referring to the gospel, the breadth. It's talking about doctrine. It's talking about true doctrine. That's the faith once delivered. Peter here doesn't use the, he uses a. So what Peter is getting at here, this is talking about, this is our salvation. This is the faith that is uh, combined with repentance in order to bring about salvation. And it's of the same kind as ours. This word same kind is actually means equal value. There's no distinction. There's no, there's no first class or second class. It is equal. Then the question becomes, well, what does he mean by ours? Who's he referring to there? And there's two predominant uh, views of that. One is ours, he's referring to the apostles. The other is ours referring to Jews. I lean toward uh, the idea of the Jews. They were the ones who originally, uh, salvation originally extended to them. Why would Peter in particular be looking at that idea of faith between as it related to Jews and as it related to Gentiles. So when, when, when salvation was extended to Gentiles, who was that through? Peter. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. Oh, Oh, yeah. And so here again, so you've got, and, and it, frankly, Acts chapter 10 was a struggle for Peter, right? God had to give him a vision three times, right? The sheet comes down from heaven with all these unclean animals. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. No, no way, no how. I've never done that before. What I've declared clean, don't you dare call unclean. As our kids would have called it, don't dare you. So Peter comes out of his trance, and who's knocking on the door? Well, the people for Cornelius, a Gentile. And Peter goes to Cornelius, and Cornelius, ah, oh, everybody he knows is gathered together to hear this message from Peter. And Peter preaches the gospel to him, and what happens? They repent. They believe, and the same things that happened to the Jews on the day of Pentecost are happening in Cornelius' house. So that when you get to Acts chapter 15, Acts 11 and then in 15, you have this idea of what do we do because the Gentiles, they've received the message, they've received salvation, and the same things that happened to us are happening to them. Well... God has extended salvation to the Gentiles. And so this faith is of the same kind. It's of the same value, the equal value. There's no distinction. Inside the church, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Neither one has precedence. Neither one is a first-class believer and the other a second-class believer. Does that make sense? Now, for us, we look at that, and it's, all right, what's the big deal? In the first century, that was a big deal, right? Jews were to have nothing to do with Gentiles. They were dogs. And so it was, it was a huge thing for them. So this faith that they have springs out of the righteousness of Christ. Now, for, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there is an interpretive, well, how do I put that? There's a grammatical rule uh, that exists that deals specifically with something that happens in this verse. And that is where it talks about our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you have two objects, but you have one pronoun. 
And the rule is, is that that pronoun, uh, th we're not talking about, since there's one pronoun, these aren't two separate people. They're one person. So how has Peter just identified Christ? He's God. He's God. Again, any questions, any questions up to here? That's all making sense? This isn't new ground. This has been plowed many times before. Okay. So now he's going to give kind of a standard greeting. In fact, it's interesting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. Now, I know somebody in this church who typically signs off on emails with grace and peace, right? How often is that a greeting, an introduction in the New Testament? See, I intentionally eliminated this from the notes. How often do you run across that greeting? How about in virtually, I think it's, it's not in Hebrews and it's not in third John, 1 John or 3 John or James. It's in every one of Paul's epistles, every one of them. It's in both of Peter's. The idea, there's some, uh, in, the, in the pastorals, it's grace, mercy, and peace, but always grace and peace. Now, Peter does do one thing that's unique to Peter. And it's may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So when you see that, that's Peter. But grace and peace. Now, is that just a saying? Is that just a, you know, a pithy little, you know, high? No, it's not. What's grace? God's favor probably want to bring in the other aspect of it here too. It's also God's power, right? Do you ever think of grace that, that way, by the way? My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength, my power is made perfect in weakness. When we approach the throne, what are we seeking? According to Hebrews 4.15, therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so again, the idea of needing, you know, when you're in a time of trouble, when you're in a time of need, grace is not just favor. Grace is also why it is that we are able to act in a godly way, even in the midst of trouble. And what's peace? Okay, the fruit of walking in the Spirit. What is it? Assurance. Okay, assurance. Flesh that out for me. What do you mean by that? Okay, there's security in Christ. There's confidence, right? Rest. An unveiled face to face relationship between two people. Nothing between, nothing hindering. hindering. 
you have peace with God, right? Because of salvation, we have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. And more specifically, God is no longer at war with us. But we also have the peace of God. Peace, you can think of it this way. Peace is the calm in the storm. When Jesus and the disciples are on the boat and the storm is up and Jesus is sleeping in the back and the disciples are freaking out. And again, keeping in mind, these guys are, a number of them are fishermen. They've been on, they've been in storms before. Master, we're perishing. We're going to die. What's Jesus's demeanor? What's their demeanor? Are they calm? No way, no how. What's Jesus's? Yeah, he's sleeping. Probably like a baby. Who's got peace? Jesus does. And so that calmness, even in the face of storm. And that grace and peace being multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So the grace and peace is rooted in what? It's rooted in truth. That's why it stands. It stands because it's true. It's grounded in truth. It, defi- it's, it, it exemplifies truth. And the word knowledge here, uh, epigenosis, is the idea of, number one, it's personal experience. Number two, it's full knowledge. So as you, as time is going by, the intent is that you and I are becoming more and more knowledgeable about God, and not just knowledgeable about him, but knowledgeable of him. What you want to be able to do is when your children come to you or when someone comes to you to ask, uh, you know, well, what has God done? You can go here and you're familiar enough with this that you can go and pull out all kinds of examples, but what else should you be able to do? Yeah, this is what Jesus has done for me. And here's places, you know, I was in this situation. Boom, there was this. 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 We should be able to pull up lots of those. That's one of the benefits of being gray-haired in Christ. You can go back over decades. Oh, yeah. He's, he's done all these different things, and this is how I've seen him go through and work in my life and in the lives of others. Okay, questions? Y'all haven't done a lot of talking today. Is that because this is more familiar ground than Revelation was? <laughs> okay, there's some Ned's heads nodding there. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you that our salvation is something that we receive, that it's given by you, that faith is given by you, it's supplied by you. There's no way we'd be able to figure these things out on our own. And so thank you that you take the initiative. Thank you that you have worked out salvation you have supplied it by your own arm thank you that you have brought all of these things to be and again thank you that we have your word that we can look that we can it's timeless these words were written almost 2,000 years ago and yet they're so appropriate for our own day and so help us as we go through that we would again see you 
that we would be, again, amazed by you, that we would be in awe of you because you are an awesome God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have borne our punishment. You've atoned for our sin with your blood. You've satisfied the wrath of God that rightly belonged to us, to me. And so we are grateful. Help us to, to be diligent in our pursuit of holiness. Help us to be diligent in our study of you, that we may know you more, that we may know you better, that we may serve you better. In Christ's name, amen.